All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to study your word freely. We get to search the depths of what you would have us know, and that you're here to guide us and teach us. Help us, Lord, to do that with a discerning heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're on to part three of our talk on postmillennialism. I realized as we went through last time, talking about just the already not yet dynamic, which is helpful in certain passages of scripture, um, but it doesn't apply to all passages or all themes or all, or all teachings in scripture. And I wanted to hit that pretty hard today uh, before we get back into our, our questions that we're, that we're going through. So this already not yet, we looked at it with the kingdom, right? So the kingdom arrived, so it's already here. Jesus casting out demons is definitively here, but there's a not yet part to it because it's developing, right? So it's already not yet. And, that, and we get that not because that's what I say or what someone else says. It's the natural reading of scripture, right? As, as we look at the, the teachings on the kingdom, this brings together the teachings in a way that's understandable rather than creating confusion. So if you, ha if you introduce an idea or a term like already not yet, and it brings together passages and brings clarity, you're probably on the right track. Okay, so, so it helped our understanding greatly with the kingdom. It also helped with binding of Satan. This isn't as explicit as the kingdom, um, but I think it, it makes the most sense to look at the binding of Satan as happening over time, with it definitively happening then somewhere after AD 70. Not sure exactly the date, but sometime after that is when it happened, then the millennium started. So we understand the binding, I think, better, those passages better, if we look at it with the already not yet. But, no, but sometimes, though, some post-millennialists will start, they'll get really giddy, and they'll start applying it to a ton of things in, in the Bible. And that's very problematic, because it's not supposed to be applied just all, you know, all the way through. And here's, some here's an obvious example. Jesus' resurrection. Right? Already not yet does not apply to that. Clearly not in the same sense. You may have some like new different use of already not yet that you want to use, which would even be helpful because how we're using it, you know, it just cause confusion. But clearly that, that, that's not the case, right? Jesus' resurrection happened. It was definitive. It's here. Now the effects, of course, are playing out o o over time, right? But the resurrection happened, okay? He was, he was dead and then he rose again, definitively. On that day, he rose again. All right, so when we get back to this, though, and we look at um, our use of it, when we apply it to the new heavens and the new earth, we are using it in a different sense. We have two different senses of this happening. But a lot of times with postmillennialists, they, they use it in the same sense, which is problematic. I think if you used it in the same sense that we did the kingdom and with the binding of Satan, what you'd find, if you were consistent, is denying the second coming. Because if you wanted to apply that, to Revelation 22 or 21, 22, and to other passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and, and so forth, all of a sudden you can get really excited about the already, and you end up never talking about the not yet, which means you really just—it's already happened in your mind. It's just you just didn't clarify it, and over time you deny the second coming because everything happened in AD 70. Now it's just un, unfolding, but Scripture does not speak of the new heavens and the new earth that way. 
So I thought, hey, let's go through that. And this would be good to establish to keep us in bounds here. One, one quick note about systematic theology, which is good, is systematic theology is supposed to keep our biblical theology and any other theology that we want to play with in bounds. Okay, systematics, which we're taking the core of the faith, we're systematizing it, and we're putting it together from creation or God, creation all the way to the future consummation. Okay, so, so we're looking through all these things systematically, and obviously we look at it as a reformed, so reformed dogmatics, but you, you need to know those things well so that when we get into these other issues, we can tether them back to systematic theology. Unfortunately, systematic theology isn't very popular with a lot of young people today because it takes a lot of work. Okay? It's, it's not playing with images and all this fun, as much creativity, because it's been clarified over hundreds and thousands of years. And so it, it can tend to come off as more boring in, in some, some sense. Um, but if you don't understand that, if you don't, I think it's, it's exciting. I think systematic theology is wonderful. But if we don't have that, it's not going to root us then correctly to then branch out and to talk about these other subjects. So I'm going to do that here right now. Okay, so if we start in Genesis 3 and work our way to Revelation, get rid of the already not yet image right now or that phrase. Take that out of your vocabulary. And let's just see how the Bible presents creation fallen and creation redeemed. Okay, what is the Bible's picture, picture of that? All right, so Genesis 3.17. This is after Adam and Eve sinned. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. He was head of creation. The judgment on Adam then is on creation, because that was what I was under his control. Verse 18, thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the, the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now you're going to die. Okay, so creation is cursed, physical ground is cursed, and man is going to die. So this is, what's that? Yeah, correct, correct, correct. So he's spiritually dead, though. That was the already, right? But physically now, this is a drawing out, drawing out process. All right. Now we go to Romans 8, and, and there are other verses in between this, but just to keep it short. Uh, it refers to the whole creation groaning, for, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The creation is suffering. It is not in a good state. Okay, it is not doing well. Then we go to Revelation 20, skip to Revelation 20, 10. This is after the, the millennium, and the, the serpent is loosed into the world, which, by the way, all eschatological positions agree on this. So Satan is loose, loosened after the millennium. And he goes to make war with God's people. And the devil that deceived, and then obviously God wins. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is God now ending this corruption. This starts with when he conquers in the, in the, um, in the, the second coming with the great white throne judgment, he conquers the, the Satan, 
and we have the second, we have the resurrection, right, where everyone stands before God, and then he's going to make all things new. Okay, it's a fairly straightforward reading as you go through scripture, and this is the historical reading, right, for hundreds and thousands of years. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And, the, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So this is the, the um, complete separation from God for eternity. So right now, people have common grace, right, that, that's given to them, um, even that are in, in hell or whatever you want to call hell today, whatever term you want to use for that, where, the, where unbelievers are currently, right, they're, they're still getting grace in a way they will not in, in, in the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so this has not happened yet, right? And now it's going to happen. All right, then we go to Revelation 21, 1. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were, were passed away, and there was no more sea. So God's judgment comes. So the world fell in Adam. We have all this suffering. We look forward to this promise where God's going to come back and he's set everything right. He comes back, he judges, he, he, resurrection happens, he judge, judges the sheep and the goats, and then he makes the world new. Okay? The, the people who are not, the pe people who are uh, unbelievers go to the lake of fire. They're there forever. This is the second death. Everyone else who loves God through his grace is now entering into the new heaven and new earth. God makes everything new. And I, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now people, some of these preterists who get uh, into danger here, flirt with it, is they'll say, well, see, but God's tabernacling right now with us. Yes, I agree. The Holy Spirit is with us, and when we come together, uh, we're two or more gathered, right? The Holy Spirit's there to give us discernment, so both in our study and also in our worship. Like, I get that. But this is a different kind of tabernacling. Okay, Jesus is with us, with the Holy Spirit, with, like, on earth, where no death, no corruption, no suffering is happening. This is a different kind of tabernacling. Okay, there, there is no suffering that's going to be going on at this point. This is a definitive moment in history that is new, which the next verse talks about. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is a different kind of tabernacling. Okay, this is not the same thing. So we need to keep that distinction clear, because what will happen is people will come to Revelation 21, and they'll say, ah, oh, see, but it's already started happening. It's like, well, I mean, kind of, I guess, if you want it. But it's not the same way as the kingdom, how we used it with the kingdom or with, or with the binding of Satan. This is a distinct, qualitatively distinct tabernacling that's happening with God's people. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. 
And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I'll skip through the rest of that chapter and go to 22. And he, sh and he shewed me a, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. How much of this is actually going to happen or is imagery? It doesn't matter. Okay, it really does not matter. Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And frankly, it doesn't change my interpretation of, of the book. I tend to lean toward it's more this is going to, this is literally going to happen than not. But if you're saying, well, some of this is imagery, I really, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Okay, it doesn't change the, the point of the passage. So like, is this, you know, is there actually going to be a river? I think yes, but we'll see. We will find out. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The big, so this is a big passage where people will go, see, this, this has to be referring to something prior to the actual second coming and God making the world new. My response to that is, how do you know that? Like, I don't, I can just claim ignorance to what this verse is referring to, or at least ignorance to how it actually would play out. Um, and, and that, I think, is a better way to, to retain all the other passages we have on the new heavens and the new earth, rather than take your interpretation, which then proceeds to, take it, to uh, introduce all these questions. Like, well, where do you stop it then? Like, if this is really, if this really is happening prior to this, this time, then what else is happening prior to this time? And what you see when you introduce that possibility, you start to just grab all of these things from the two chapters, and you lose the not yet pretty quickly. It's like, oh, I can see now if we start stretching this, it's, it's all already, which is not the case. So I, I, I don't claim to know exactly how this is going to function in the new heavens and the new earth, but I don't have to, okay? Because the volume of verses on this tells me it's in the future. And a couple of them, okay, that I don't know how to explain, I don't have to know how to explain. Because the volume of it, right, I, I, I side on, not the few. Does that make sense? So when we do Calvinism, Arminianism, reasoning, Calvinism has large chapters on, you know, but we could defend TULIP. We can go through large passages that, that would defend this. There are five or so individual verses that Arminians would bring up, like 2 Peter 3.9, where they would say, but how do you interpret this, this, this passage? Now, I think we can interpret, I think we have answers for that. But even if you don't, that's fallacious reasoning. Like, that is not how we should be reasoning in Scripture. Okay, if there are entire sections that are clear on a passage, if you have one verse that you don't understand, you don't then undo the passage to then take someone else's interpre interpretation of this one verse, which is still questionable. Let me pause there for a second. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, would you draw a hard line Yeah, so, so, so I think the kingdom came, well, for sure was here when Jesus cast out devils and his disciples cast out devils. Now, did it, did it come when he was making war with Satan in the wilderness? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'm not, I'm not sure. But the kingdom definitely came before the new heavens and the new earth. And then it's developing over time. And probably the, most the, the last definitive change in the kingdom that... that it, uh, this side of the new heavens and new earth is AD 70. A lot of things changed in AD 70. A lot of the culmination that was building up from casting out demons culminated in the AD 70 throw, uh, 
demolishing of, of Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean the kingdom isn't still developing, okay? It, it is. But I think the next definitive moment where that happens is when Jesus comes back and makes, makes all things new. Um, would it be fair to say, are you saying that, yes, there is overlap, but definitive moments is like in a relay race. When that baton exchanges hands, mm -hmm. that is a definitive moment, even though the old, the old runner and the new runner is running at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that seems to be what's communicated. Right. Yeah, that there's clear, like, so casting out demons is a definitive moment that started it. And then we have um, the, the death and then resurrection of Christ, of course, are definitive moments. And then, uh, you know, I, I would say giving communion was a definitive moment after the resurrection. So, like, the whole of history then is like a series of relay runners mm -hmm. with a series of battle exchanges until the final finish line. Yes. But we seem to be in a moment right now that's a very long period, right. which probably the longest period uh, other than the new heavens and the new earth. And so, AD 70, when that happened, was the culmination of a ton of things leading up to that. And then from there, the gospel is going to conquer, conquer the world, and that's going to take presumably a long, a long time to happen. Could, could be quick, could be a few thousand years, but it could be 100,000 years, okay? But it is definitely a longer period of time where, where that is happening, which is the millennium. Now the millennium, when it, when it ends, right, the kingdom is still here, Jesus is still on the throne, and then God, over, he conquers Satan's last rebellion. Then we have the um, great white throne judgment, and then God, makes everything new. But the kingdom is still here when that happens. And so the next definitive moment then would be second coming, final white throne, or great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And then what are they after that? I don't know. I don't think the Bible tells us what they are. But they will be infinite, infinite in number. Good questions. Any, anyone, anyone else? All right, so verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. Okay, these are definitive verses. Like, so there was a curse that's introduced. Creation is growing, and now it's gone. The curse is gone. It's not like unraveling over time. It is gone. So even if we say, and I would agree with this, that the world is becoming better over time, we're going to lessen the effects of, of the curse. I think that's all true in the millennium. But people are still going to die. There's still going to be suffering. We are still sinners. There's still sanctification happening. This is a definitive moment where the curse is gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. This one verse should cause us to weep, to bow down, to glorify God until we die. This one verse. You get to see God's face. We get to see God glorified in Christ. We get to see his presence in a way that no one else has. We get to be in God's presence forever. So whatever you want to do with, with the uh, tree of life or the, you know, the fruit and, and all those, those couple passages, you have to be able to retain these verses. What a beautiful scene. 
And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Notice that doesn't mean there will be no stars and there will be no sun. You just don't need it, right? Because God's light will fill, fill the creation. So I'm not sure if there are going to be stars or not. Um, what I do know is that the new creation will be more glorious than this one, incomparably more, more glorious. All right, so let's go back through a couple of passages now, now that we've set this story. And look at this. 2 Peter 3 is a common one to, for the new post-millennialist to put in uh, 80-70 fulfillment, not in the future. So chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall mount with fervent heat. Some people will say, well, hey, that's just the fall of, of Jerusalem. And the Bible does speak sometimes in that strong, forceful way about judgment. So I'm not saying that there isn't room for that, right? But as we continue on in, in this passage, it ties it to the new heavens and the new earth. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me stop there for a second. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, but let me stop here for a second. So, according to this promise, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, which has to be future. Okay? New heavens and new earth is future. Now, people who want to bring this into AD 70 should ask the question, like, what are you gaining by doing that? Other than it's a novel thing to do and you'll get more books, you know, sold. What are you gaining in your understanding of scripture? I would argue nothing. You gain nothing from this. We can make sense of this passage as being in the second coming with Revelation 21 and 22. We can make sense of that just as well with that interpretation. So what are you gaining by this interpretation? You gain nothing. There is no further understanding of scripture that you get with this interpretation compared to the traditional one. What are you losing? You're losing all sorts of things. You create all sorts of problems because now if the new heavens and new earth is referring to 8070, well, how do you stop that then? How do you stop that train from just plowing through all the other verses in the New Testament that refer to the new heavens and new earth and a new creation coming? I would argue you cannot. Once you open this door, it just goes through everything else. So you gain nothing and you lose everything if you can't hold this together. And I don't think you can. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the deed shall be raised, or sorry, the deed, the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So this is the, right, we have the resurrection, we have bodies like Jesus has a new body, and then we're judged. But now we put on, though, incorruption, we put on immortality. This has to refer to the future, right, where God is making all things new. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to 
to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This sounds extra sweet in the King James. Where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? Notice, though, we don't have to fear death right now, right? Because when we die, we're going to be with God. But our body still dies, right? We still have that sting, right, is still there until Jesus takes it away. So the victory it's pointing to is the future. When death is gone, we have new bodies, and we no longer, the, the sting is gone. There is no victory over death. And right now, it's still there. Our bodies are still, still succumb to death, but they will not. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's because of that future hope that we are steadfast and unmovable. God will conquer death someday through Christ. That is our hope. That is our victory. All right, so this already not yet, I propose, we just remove the other use. It's not, it doesn't help. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it, only, it creates more confusion than it actually brings clarity. In fact, I would argue it brings no clarity. You're not getting anything from this. So just remove it. Let's just keep already not yet to the act, so the uses of the kingdom, binding of Satan, there are probably some other examples, but they got to be qualitatively just like that and just use it in that sense. And then we would guard against all the other problems that come with the other use. Are we all in agreement? So when we talk about already not yet, we got to use it in this sense. Just one, just my yeah, go ahead. Just like in Poland, so the kingdom is now and not yet because it's growing. Mm -hmm. are, are we saying that the, the, the new heavens and the new earth is only a definitive moment, or are we saying that it can be both? No, I would say it's a definitive, scripture presents it as a definitive moment so, in the future. Right, so but, but you, would, you would argue that the, the fullness of the kingdom well, fullness of the kingdom, I'm not, sure that ever, I'm not sure that ever happens because in the new heavens and the new earth, it's, it's going to go on forever and we're going to expand and do all these things. So I'm not sure what fullness... Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I, I, fullness may be the wrong word then. Complete return of Christ. Yeah, I would say there's the, the last recorded definitive moment in the kingdom for us is the second coming and the new creation. Right. So it is possible in the kingdom then to have now, not yet, mm -hmm. definitive moment. Yeah. And then, but with the kingdom of God, with the, with the new heavens and the new earth, you're saying, you're saying there are no passages which allow us to interpret the new heavens and the new earth as a now, not yet, and definitive. It's only definitive. I, I don't see any. Right. There, I, I may have missed some, okay, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing any. So the already is, already is marked by these definitive moments. So, yeah, um, I'd have to look through the passage. Yeah, I'd be willing. I'd be willing to. I'd be willing to bend on this, but I want to know it from, from from scripture. I don't know the passage, 
well enough and how it's tied to the new heavens and the, and the new earth. One of, one of the things that people get caught up in is new creation, the term new creation. So is it 2 Corinthians 5.17? If you're in Christ, you're new creation, right? Now, some people will get playful with that and say create, new creation has come to try to connect it to Revelation 21 and 22. This is Jordan now com coming out. Um, uh, new creation has come. It's like, well, now you're playing with words here. Like, am I a new creation in Christ? Yes, amen, I'm a new creation in Christ. But this is not in the same sense that there's a new physical world and new heavens that are now come together and the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make sense? So new creation now is in a different sense as the future new creation that, that will come. Yeah, Arnie. Daniel, Pastor Alf, uh, no, the Isaiah passage, um, child dying young, lion laying down with the lamb. Um, you asked the question, but um, you must have an idea on what you think the answer is, even though we're all told that. But do you think that that is near the end of the millennium when the church has done her job? Right? Or do you think that's after that? Yes. So, yeah, not to, not to disagree, because I'm... No, uh, by all means. Listen, I'm really loving your studies. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm struggling. <laughs> I can appreciate the kingdom is now not yet, because mm -hmm. you see loads of parables that gives us the growth structure. Yeah. It's, it's growing. And then um, I can also see definitive moments in the kingdom of God, such as the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can, me personally, I can also see the same thing in the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the, the baton exchanging, so the new heavens and the new earth, in part, Isaiah, mm -hmm. um, we've entered in, but we, we've not got to experience its fullness because the, the sinfulness, Matthew 13, the corruption world has not been removed. Mm -hmm. So what remains stays. And so for me, I'm struggling to understand the new heavens and the new earth is only a definitive moment sure. rather than a progressive moment. And you would say that's mostly because of Isaiah? I would say mostly because of well, Isaiah seems to set it up. Um, but I would also say that the Lord's Prayer, that God's will on earth be done as it is in heaven, Mm -hmm. seems to bring a correlation between what is happening, what has happened in heaven is happening on earth. On earth. So there is, this, there is this overlap between the what will be and the what is. So the, th the thing I want to guard against is the new heavens and the new earth, as we would talk about it as the layman, and I present this picture to someone, like what's your understanding of the new heavens and the new earth as they read scripture? No more death and no more suffering and no more curse is part of that picture which is a definitive moment. Like there's no, we don't, we don't through science undo, like take that away over time and all of a sudden we wake up and it's gone. Like we can, I think we can limit the effects of it on us, which will extend our lifespan, which probably gets into what's going on in, in Isaiah, where we're ex extending lifespans, we're understanding more about the physical world and we have all these blessings that come, come with that. But people are still dying, there's still sorrow, like all, none of these things have gone away at all. So I want to make sure that we don't, because that picture of the new heavens and new earth is pretty consistent in scripture where these things are gone. So one thing that I would, that I would completely concede to someone 
who, and I have to go back through the Isaiah passage uh, to, to look at it more deeply, but the new heavens and new earth as pictured in Isaiah, I think re, uh, the picture is long lifespans already here, right? That's the whole, that's why the, it's a problem passage from, let's say, my interpretation because children are dying at 100 and that's young, right? And, and snakes are, are not biting children and so forth. Lion, the lion's leading the lamb, so on. Um, but notice, though, even if I were to concede that point, it would still put that moment far into the future, like maybe toward the end of the millennium. So even if I wanted to concede that the new heavens and new earth had an already not yet aspect to it, that first moment happens at the end of the millennium. Yeah. So I'd be open, I'd be more than open to conceding that point and accepting that, so long as we had our first already be at the end of the millennium. Because if we don't do that, if the already is, is on 80, 70, or before then, I, I think you get into a lot of problems with how to keep then everything. How do you keep most of the new heavens and new earth in the future? Yes. So that's what I want to guard against. So just to, to come to an agreement, I would say, I'm willing to concede that point, but we got to make it the end of the millennium to uphold everything else with Isaiah. Yeah, Jeremiah. But hold on, at first I'd stop you right, right there. Like, when they returned to Eden, I still don't feel comfortable saying that. Like, they returned to Eden. Um, Eden was nothing like what they experienced. Like, the bloodshed, just being destroyed by God because of the rebellion. Like, like this, so we have to be very careful when we say that returning to Eden. It's like, well, if you mean a land of promise where fruit is, you know, is, you know, babies are born and civilization is built. Like, I, I, yes, I, I agree with that. But if you just say that, return to Eden in one sense, people tend to start to overly spiritualize what happened and glamorize what, what happened. Well, that, that's kind of what I'm pushing on. Like, there was, a, there was a spiritual sense in which it was Eden, but then there was a, a real sense, a physical, this-worldly sense in which it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tend to look at it as the same type of thing when Paul says we're a new creation, um, that we are a new creation in Christ because mm -hmm. God is taking our spiritual nature and making it new. But the effects of the fall still exist on our bodies. And, mm -hmm. and so we still, it, it's a partial, uh, it's a partial fulfillment of that prophecy and not a full uh, expectation of so I do look at it as already not yet, in the, in the sense that we are already a new creation today. That's not a, not a future thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, we're, our bodies are still affected by the curse. We're still going to die. And so the final fulfillment of that comes... But hold on, though. Like, yeah. But that use is already different than the kingdom use. Because the new Eden did not come when they came to the promised land. 
It's not the first moment of Eden, un Eden unfolding over time, the new Eden unfolding over time. We're using it in a different sense now. Like we're, we're starting to look at just new life and like we're getting, we're getting into the opaque at, at, the, at this point. So that's why, I, that's this, these are the things I wanna guard against using the already not yet because it gets us into very quickly making all these things the same and, and they're not. So I think I can find agreement with you on that but I don't wanna use the term already not yet. I just think it's gonna create all sorts of confusion with it. So let's just talk about what it is and then compare them. Last one, yes sir. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so great observation. Bonson point to you, sir. Good job. You're writing these down, right? Do you have a pencil? You should be writing these down. It's a big deal. So what he said is, uh, what about foreshadowings? Yes, for, yes, exactly. So to Jeremiah's point, that could be a foreshadowing of what's, of what's coming. And those foreshadowings unfold over time. We have more and more foreshadowings happen. As Israel rejects God's promise, right, then we have more foreshadowings pointing to the, to the future. Excellent point, sir. Yes. But I wouldn't use already not yet for the, for, for the foreshadowings, at least not just all of them. There might be one or two that it would work. But yeah, Pastor. No, I was just, okay. so I was just thinking on this. Thing. Yeah, that's great. Well, I had question three queued up for today, but you guys did great. I think this, this topic has been on my heart for a while, ever since 2000, 2010, when James Jordan came to Christchurch Mankato, and I was there, and he was talking about, I had never really met him, didn't really, I was, I was new to this, and it was clear to me uh, that language was being used in a way that was unsustainable. And so, but that introduced the, me reading his books and Lightheart's books and then for 10 years going through uh, post-millennialism and what is my reading of it in contrast to, to, to theirs. Um, they do some good things, I just, but the way they use language I think is very dangerous. It can get us into all sorts of uh, things like denying the second coming. They don't deny the second coming, but I think their use of language could lead someone there if, if they were consistent. So having said that, I thought, I was convicted after our last session that we should really dive into this because it's a, it's a key point in how we reason in eschatology and in, in scripture in general. So I was hoping it'd be a good discussion and it was, it went the entire time. So thank you for that. And next time we'll pick up in question three and then we'll continue on. We have We'll have three more, uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, see, how, see how much you guys keep talking, which is wonderful. <laughs> okay, I'm not discouraging, discouraging that at all. But we're eventually gonna get to, we've established post-millennialism, then we're gonna get to, is this the best story that God, is this God's best story? And I have a proof that it is. Your, your comments about language always has to be at our, our forefront. Yes. There's a, there's a language difference there. Yes. And you can say the covenant revealed to Adam was already but not yet. Mm -hmm. And you can also say as God ruled out various covenants, it's a further manifestation for, and you saw it even in between, you saw a foreshadowing of future covenants. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 
lot of arguments come down to dictionary definitions. Mm -hmm. That's why you can't just assume words. You have to say, what do you mean by that? Yes. And I think, I, I hope what you've seen in real time here is how how difficult it actually is to keep meaning the same in a conversation. It's actually very difficult, especially when you get into imagery in the Bible. And this is not about today, but just this is why so many people, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, Armenians, Calvinists, whatever, we just talk past one another. We mm -hmm. don't take the time to spend and sit down and just ask the questions. We're too much in a hurry. We have sound bites. We really don't love each other enough to slowly unpack a lot of these things. Yeah. Amen. And who would have thought, I know I'm a broken record here, but it needs to be broken for a long time. Uh, who would have thought that Wittgenstein was the man to bring this to us? Like to nail it philosophically. Like just, and the church has ignored this, and I'll keep pounding this drum until I die, and hopefully my progeny will then too, is that we need to get, we need to understand this really well, because it clarifies how we reason through scripture immensely. All right, I love you guys so much. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you that you love us. You first loved us so that we then love you. And we get to come here. We get to reason through scripture. We get to be at peace with one another. We get to break bread with you. We get to worship with you. God, I pray that discussions like this would create excitement in our lives to learn more about scripture, to go to it with excitement, with joy, with an intensity to learn more because your word matters and our understanding of your word fuels the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.